If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Jude. We're going to be in the letter of Jude, the epistle of Jude, uh, this last book before the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And while you're turning there, I I just want to say, you know, how happy I am for you guys who are Phillies fans. Um, It makes me jealous as a Pirates fan because we are so far away from the joy that you are experiencing right now. Um, So if you wouldn't mind, I I would like to root with you uh, this postseason. So... Um. December 7th, 1941, certainly will be a day that will live in infamy. It was the surprise attack by the Japanese on the U.S. naval base of Pearl Harbor uh, that was the catalyst that entered the United States into World War II. In a span of one hour and 15 minutes, the Japanese air fleet, comprised of 350 aircraft, bombed the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Four U.S. battleships were sunk. Another four were damaged. 188 U.S. aircraft were destroyed, with another 159 being damaged. But most importantly, 2,403 Americans were killed, with another 1,143 injured. As the first wave of bombers were flying over North um, Oahu, towards Pearl Harbor, which was to the south, there was a almost brand new radar installation installed in the north of the island. And the, the guys that were manning that radar station saw just this large amount of aircraft flying over. And they radioed in to Pearl Harbor. And operators, as they contacted the base, were ignored In their reports, they weren't sure what it was, but they were largely ignored due to security reasons because at Pearl Harbor, it was um, was known that there were six B-17 bombers that were to arrive. Now, if the warnings were regarded, the attack would have still taken a toll. But we wouldn't have been totally surprised, totally caught off guard. The warnings were ignored, and it led to a complete catastrophe for the Pacific fleet. Now, for us as people of faith, God has been gracious to warn us from impending danger from those who seek to discourage our faith and pollute the message of the gospel. But if we fail to ignore these warnings, we face spiritual catastrophe. Jude, in two short verses this morning, awakens our minds and hearts to the damaging attacks that exist from those who seek to malign the testimony of Christ in our communities. And because of these impending attacks, Jude calls us to dig in and to fight for the faith. We're called to action. We're not called to be passive. We're not called to wait. We're not called to just hope that all things work out. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude writes this letter 
to call the believers that received it, and he calls us today, 2,000 years later, to action. We are called to guard and protect the faith as we rest in the knowledge of the true gospel. Church, if we ignore these warnings, we're giving Satan a foothold not only into our own lives, but into our faith community. And we're opening the door for him to just walk in. And we know the tactics of our adversary. He seeks to devour and destroy. He's not going to just gently come in and kind of rearrange the furniture of our spiritual lives. He's coming to burn it down and destroy it. Now, it's quick to notice the shift in the tone of this letter that, that we're reading and that Jude writes. I mean, it's not a long letter. We talked about this last week. It's 25 verses long. Uh, but it, Jude is very quick to move on from the loving tones that opened the letter in verses 1 and 2. And we talked about those tones last week. Um, and, and we're seeing in this transition the urgency that Jude writes with. You get the sense that Jude is kind of like a, um, a wartime battle-hardened general on the field as he is writing to those who are called to the Lord's service to call them to action. He's calling the saints who, as we talked about last week, called by God, beloved by the Father, and kept for the day of Jesus Christ. To those who are called, kept, or called, beloved, and kept to action. To rise up. And we see this in verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, verse 3 really acts as the theme of this whole letter. It's, it's what Jude is writing about. It, it, it's the focus. It's his heart. It's the emphasis of what he wants to communicate. Jude begins by stating that initially, he wanted to write to them to encourage them in the common salvation that they had. And so there was likely, at, at first glance, uh, a, a desire in Jude to write a, a, a letter of encouragement to these people that would receive it about the common joy that we all experience in knowing Jesus Christ. This letter would have been an encouragement. He would have invited his readers to celebrate the goodness of God through the gift of Jesus Christ. Now, when, when Jude says that he was making every effort to write to us about our common salvation, we need to talk about this word common. This common, or this word common, uh, was not that the message is like everything else. Yeah, it's like common, like every good thing that we could ever experience is all lumped into one thing. Not common in that sense, but common in the sense that for every believer who is united to the Father through faith in the Son, we share the common property of believing in the gospel. It's the basis for all of us. I mean, while we all come from various backgrounds, with various personalities, having different gifts and desires, what unites us here 
And this assembly is the common faith that we share in Jesus Christ. This is the ground for which our relationships are forged. This is what unites us together. It's not just that we all live in the Lebanon County region. It's not just that we all know the same uh, or we're fond of the same things. Like we know where all the schools are. We know what all of the, you know, fun Lebanon Valley kind of um, things are, you know, whether it's food or where you go for a hike or what you like to do. It's not those things. In fact, when you, when you take a step away from what he's saying about this common salvation, you begin to realize just how varied the body of Christ is. Because when we get to heaven, there are going to be people that we've never, ever thought to be around. And it's not because we don't want to. It's just they live halfway around the world in a culture that we've never experienced with different backgrounds and, and all the things that go with that. But because of Jesus Christ, we are brethren. We are, as Jude calls us, beloved in verse 3. Those who are loved by God. And when he fits us into his family, there is no distinction, as Paul writes, between male or female, between Jew or Greek or Scythian. We are all same in Jesus Christ. This is the common salvation that he hoped to write. And while that was his initial target, news had gotten to him. We're not sure exactly how, but he writes this letter to warn those who were in the faith because he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He felt the necessity. This word necessity means pressure or distress. You can get the sense that as Jude has quill in hand and as he's writing this letter, that he is broken inside for what he is hearing taking place in the community of faith that he's writing this letter to. Like, there was nothing else that he could say or do but these words. Because if he didn't give this warning, if he didn't call these believers to action, his primary thought is that they would have a shipwreck of faith. And his love for them compelled him to warn, to have great necessity. I'd just like to think about that for a second for the the people in our lives that God has entrusted in our care, the people that we know that who are in the faith that might be going through a similar challenge. Do we feel the same necessity, urgency, distress to warn those that we know and love who are in the faith to be watchful? to be careful, to be aware of what's going on around them so that they can dig in and contend for the faith. And I know, I mean, even as a pastor, I, I have these thoughts and struggle with, well, who am I, Lord? Because in my own self, I, I know I'm just as broken. Like, do you ever come up with all the excuses that you can come up with? Why you shouldn't warn someone? Maybe because you're afraid, they'll kind of look back at you and say, well, what about you? 
Beloved, the best way that you can love someone who is in the faith is not to just gently encourage them and say, well, you know, we're praying for you. The best way that you can love them when they're going through a challenge of faith is in love. Bring them God's truth and warn them. Don't yell at them. Don't punish them. But look them in the eyes with the heart of Christ and plead with them. Urge them to follow the Savior. Jude's love for these beloved motivated him to write this letter. He appeals, that word appeals, means to urge, implore, or exhort. There's no question that the reader of this letter would understand the seriousness of the matter. Like the, There's no one reading this scroll that would have opened it up and said, okay, this is nice, but it's really not that important. They would have been at the edge of their seats, leaning in when they hear words like necessity and urged. There's, there's, there's something about this appeal that brings them to a place of listening. He urges them to contend earnestly for the faith. And I, I love the, the words that, that Jude uses to explain this. <clears throat> we miss it a little bit in the English language. It, and it's something that I, I think when we begin to understand what he's saying, that we see the bigger picture of what he's calling us to. But this phrase, to contend earnestly, it was one compound word in the Greek language. It means to struggle or to fight. It comes from the Greek root word agon, which is where we get the English word to agonize. One Greek-English lexicon, and a lexicon is really like a, um, a vocabulary book, like it gives you words and their meanings. One lexicon stated for this word to contend earnestly, uh, it, it says this, effort expended in a noble cause. Effort expended in a noble cause. It was used in connection with the Greek culture that focused on the Greek games, denoting a strenuous struggle like overcoming someone in a wrestling match. Now, I, I never wrestled in high school. Um, I've been to a few wrestling matches. And whether they, they happen very quickly or they last for, you know, the full time allowed, you can see the struggle that is going on when you have two people pitted against each other, strenuously exerting their energy to win. That's how we are called to live our lives in the faith. There are no days off in the Christian life. None. We are to strenuously express all effort in defending the faith. And the focus on this and the idea behind to contend earnestly is to expend all of your energy to prevail. 
to prevail, to win. Like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and in other places, you know, he runs with the focus. He, he runs to win the prize. He buffets his body. He strengthens himself as to be someone who isn't like a boxer who's just boxing in the air, wasting energy. That everything that we are called to in the Christian life is to be focused on the determined effort on our part to contend earnestly for the faith and to express all energy on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ to dig in and not give in to the pressures of the world. Now, you might hear words like this. You might hear, you know, these word pictures painted and think, well, does that mean that I have to maintain? That, that, does that mean I have to live and work in such a way that if I don't do these things, God is not pleased and maybe I'll lose so great a salvation? Brothers and sisters, you cannot lose your salvation. Your salvation and the final destination of you being united with the Lord forever, not just going to heaven, but with the Lord is guaranteed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, in the process of sanctification, in the process of the everyday living with Jesus, Jude and all of the other apostles that we read in the New Testament call us to live actively for the Lord Jesus Christ, to not be passive, to not mail it in. We've talked about this before. You can never retire from the faith. It's not like, hey, I I have my years of service in. I did all the things. And now I'm just going to coast into eternity. Whether you are brand new in the faith or whether you have walked with the Lord for many years, Jude calls you to contend earnestly for the faith. I mean, I, I hear this call. And I wonder in myself and and for our community how often we contend in terms like he's saying here. But really, is there any other choice? Is there another option? What I mean by that is Jesus gave us his best. He laid down his life for us to free us from sin's penalty and power. Who are we to offer anything less as we defend the faith that has set us free? I mean, who are we to say to God, hey, thank you for that great salvation that, oh, by the way, cost your son his life. But you know what? I'd prefer my comfort over here, Lord. I don't like to be challenged and stretched in these ways. I sometimes like the old things. Jude's like, no. Grow up and press on. Mature in the faith. There comes a time in the Christian life that we need to move on from elementary, childish things and grow up. That's really what Jude's calling us to. In a world that is antagonistic towards the saving message of the gospel, Church, let us not shrink away from contending for the faith. 
we are losing ground, not just North Andal Bible Church. I'm saying the true church of Jesus Christ is losing ground in a culture that is progressively more and more antagonistic to the true gospel. And it's not just that people don't want to hear anything about God. It's that they, they are actively seeking to destroy the testimony of God. And what are they and how are they doing that? Not just in subtle ways, but in loud ways of undermining the inspiration and authority of Scripture, of undermining the work that Jesus has done as the unique one that came from heaven to pay for the sins of the world. Church, we're at war. Like, just like what initiated World War II and the surprise attack of Pearl Harbor and and from what we know about that greatest generation that ever lived, what was going on from 1941 to 1945 was the extreme sacrifice that everyone had to support the effort so that not just the good guys win, but that evil would be disposed of. That in the Christian life, as we walk through this world and are not just gently or passively antagonized because we live for Jesus, but because we know that we are living in a world that has fallen and broken, that we would shore ourselves in the gospel and contend and earnestly fight for the faith. church, you get the sense Jude's writing these words and what he's saying is, will you join me in this noble effort? Will you join me in this call? Now, when he says to contend earnestly for the faith, that phrase, the faith, is a reference to its fullness, not just faith in Jesus Christ and that's it, but like the full picture of what it means to be in the faith. It's not just the ingredients of faith, but it's the whole package. It's not just the entrance into a relationship with God, but it means the demands of walking with God. And Paul stated this in Romans 1.5 in stating the obedience of faith. And so the faith, this phrase the faith, is not merely just a list of propositions. It is fully the life-changing activity of God conformity to the imperatives of a relationship with him and complete obedience to Jesus. It's the radical call of discipleship to deny yourself and follow him. It's as one preacher said, the life of God and the soul of men. That is what the faith is. The life of God and the soul of men. And that is what we are to contend urgently, earnestly, with full effort for. It's not something we just do Sunday mornings or at Bible study or in a Christian service project. It's with every effort. Like if, if you start thinking about it in those terms, what you begin to realize is everything that you do in life has the opportunity to either help you contend for the faith or to draw you away from the faith. I want to pick on someone this morning, and he's going to be like, oh, brother, 
Like when you watch the Yankees in the ninth inning last night blow the lead. The choice to either contend for the faith and praise God that your team is still in it or go crazy and be like, ah, I can't believe it did it. You know, like you start thinking about in terms, it's not like we have these categories in life. Here's my spiritual category and here's my secular category. The spiritual life consumes every category of life. Contend earnestly. And this is the faith, as Jude says, that we are to contend for. It was once for all handed down to the saints. Underline that phrase in your Bibles. And if you're afraid to write in your Bible, it's okay. I told you you can do it. Once for all, handed down to the saints. And if you want to write next to it, or if you just want to remember when you see that underline, here is what you need to see when Jude writes this phrase. We are not free to change it or add to it. The faith has been delivered once for all. Church, I have seen just in my generation people that have come along to try to add to or detract from the gospel, the faith. I have seen people that carry the name pastor, scholar, theologian that have tried to add to or take away from the faith that has been delivered once for all to all the saints. Church, this is a call for us as we dig in and defend ourselves in the faith to know that that faith that we shore ourselves in, it's already given and complete. We don't need to add to it at all. And that should be a warning to us when we hear voices from the outside coming in saying, well, Jesus really isn't who he said he is. Or when he said these things, it really didn't mean these things. That an alarm should go off and we should say, no, the word of God is settled in heaven, as the book of Psalms says, and it will not change. And we are warned that if anyone adds to this word, we'll be judged by God. It's once for all handed down. Jude is writing, on your feet, no more resting, contend, agonize, give maximum effort. The Christian faith is worthy of your struggle. It's time for us to wake up and fight hard for the sake of the gospel. Why? Well, Jude gives us the why in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, you got to dig in. Why? Because they're already in your company. They're already in the assembly. He says certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Now you get the sense now for the rest of the letter because his focus is to warn us of what these people do and how they act and what they look like. Like there's a disdain in Jude's mind. He's not just casually saying, hey, these guys, you know, they're kind of misguided and, you know, you should just be careful around them. 
He calls them certain persons. Like you get the sense in his mind, he's like, don't even go there. They've crept in unnoticed. As we read the rest of the letter, we're going to see that Jude has nothing good to say about these certain persons. Nothing. The word crept means to slip in with stealth. They're like slyly coming in. One translation talks about uh, creeping in. They translate it this way. They wormed their way in. And notice the word in. That's an important word. Because they're in the fellowship of the saints. Can I just say it this way? They're in the church. Now, before we start going crazy McCarthyism, 1950s America, where everyone was feared to be a communist and start pointing fingers and saying, oh, you're the person that Jude talked about. Let me just warn you. They're in the church. And sometimes over the span of your time that you've been a part of God's church, they maybe have sat next to you sung all the same songs, prayed along with the people that were praying. They might have taught Sunday school. They maybe have even preached sermons. They've crept in unnoticed. They were not attacking from the outside. They were attacking from the inside. Galatians 2 and 2 Corinthians 11 are both passages that speak of a false brethren. Not the true brethren, not the beloved that Jude refers to here, but the false brethren. So here's what I want you to do for a minute. Keep your, you know, maybe put your bulletin in Jude 1, or uh, we're going to look at Jude uh, 4, and, and turn back to Matthew 13. We're going to look at this first gospel in Matthew 13, if you're, if you're a part of the Senior Saints Bible study, you've already heard us talk about this recently in the parables of Jesus. Uh, this is really the, the first time in Jesus' life and ministry on earth that he began to teach in parables. Parables were stories that he taught to conceal a message that those who were in the faith would believe the message and understand the principles. Those who were antagonistic towards Jesus would hear the story and it would just fly right over their head. And it really saved the um, arguing back and forth that would go on to distract Jesus from teaching. So he began to teach in parables. And in uh, Matthew 13, one of the parables that he teaches begins in verse 24 about the tares among wheat. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. 
Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So you see in this parable that Jesus teaches, there is a field, and, and they were to put wheat into the field as, as uh, produce, as, a, as something that was going to benefit not only the landowner, but those who would be able to receive the wheat from. And then an enemy of the landowner came, and he sprinkled all the tares, a bunch of weeds in the midst of the wheat field. And the workers came and said, what are we going to do? And what does the landowner say? He says, listen, it's too early right now to tear up the tares. Because if you do, you're going to ruin the wheat that's right around it. But when the harvest comes and you tear it out of the ground, collect all those tares and burn it up. It's not good for anything. And what I love about this parable within the context of these parables is that Jesus even goes further in Matthew 13 in verse 36, and he gives the explanation to his disciples. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They had that thought. Jesus Just help us to understand this a little more. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He's, that's his field. He's the landowner. And the field is the world. That's the world we live in. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So there's a bit of apocalyptic literature here, you know, future literature of what's going to happen. And Jesus teaches his disciples there, and he teaches us today that at the end of time, when Jesus returns and his kingdom is ready to be set up, that the angels will gather the wheat from the tares, and the tares that are the sons of disobedience, the sons of the devil, they will be gathered up and thrown into the burning fire. And then Jesus says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. To us in the faith, when we hear these words in the context of what Jude is writing, saying that there are false teachers already amongst us that has crept in. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus warn us to? Stay strong in the faith. Don't lose heart. The Son is returning and he will make all things right. He will. Satan's not going to win. All of the attacks that he's throwing at the church, all of the times when we look and we think, How on earth are we going to survive this? One more generation that seems to be falling away. It seems like nobody wants to follow the Lord, walk with the Lord, believe in the Lord. Everyone's going their own way, doing their own thing, living for themselves. And that is even creeping into the church. This kind of thinking that it doesn't care. We don't care how God thinks about us because he'll just forgive us and make it better. Jesus says, stay strong because in that day, The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. Church, if we contend and dig in and not give up, 
there's a day coming, oh glorious day, when the Lord will gather us to himself and his righteousness will shine in the sky. These certain persons are unnoticed. They're a false brethren. Listen, not everyone who goes to church teaches the scriptures. Serving God or doing it for the right reasons. We need to be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who as they were taught the scriptures, they then said, you know what, we're not just going to take it at face value because somebody told us that. But what does it say about the Bereans? They searched the scriptures together. They examined the scriptures. They heard the words and they opened the book. And they're like, okay, is what I'm hearing in in line with what is uh, written? And that's what we need to do in the faith. Jude is aware of that. He calls our attentions to those who have crept in, who have wormed their way in. And likely through charm or influence, they began affecting the community of faith with false doctrine. We, We talked about this before. There are a lot of false teachers in the church. There are. There's a lot of bad doctrine being spewed out there. There are a lot of bestseller books. There are a lot of great popular podcasts that everyone flocks to that are being led by false teachers. And so they're not terrible speakers. They're not boring people. They're they're not like, you know, okay, that's what we're going to talk about today. They're captivating What they say tickles the ears of their listeners, and they're like, oh, right. You know, I've never heard that before, but that sounds right the way that you explain it. And I would just say to you, if you ever hear anything and think, I've never heard that before, stop. Unless you're a new Christian and you've never read the Bible. If you're a maturing, growing Christian, and and you have read the Word, and you've sat under the ministry of the Word, and and you're following God in obedience by reading Him and and living for Him, and you hear something and think, boy, I've never heard that before. Nobody else has ever said that before. I've looked through the Scriptures. I've looked through early church history. I've looked for those faithful ministers of the Word of God, and I've never heard this before. Pause. Be careful. But what I love about what Jude does is he also gives us the characteristics of the false teachers. In Jude 4, they are those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. That's just Jude saying, like way back in Old Testament times. In fact, there's a reference to Enoch later in this letter in verses 14 through 16 that explain in the days of Enoch, Enoch warned that a judgment was to come to those who were perverting God's truth. And who's Enoch? Well, he lived before Noah. That's how long ago God was warning. Much like in Acts 20, 29, when Paul left the Ephesian church, he warned the elders of that church, when I go, savage wolves would come in. God is warning us. They were teaching a message of faith that was devoid of righteousness, full of sensuality, abandoning the law of God, and even more damning, they denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're in trouble. These teachers are in great trouble. So their characteristics, or what are the characteristics of ungodly persons, as Jude calls them, 
because that's the essence of who they are. They're not just misguided or mistaken. They're ungodly. They have no ability to please God. They live in unbelief. They are those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That's a fun word. How many of you use that word every day? How about every year? This word means to live life with no restraint and focus more on living with no sexual limits. That's what the word means. They live decadent lives, and as such, they have turned the grace of God into doing whatever they want, thinking that the grace of God will forgive them. Oh, that's the world we live in today. They lived as if God's grace was a license to sin, that they could do whatever they wanted. It's like the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You've got to be careful. If you remember from last week, we gave a label to this kind of thinking as being Gnostic in nature. Now, within probably 100 years of when Jude wrote this, there was a full-blown heresy in the early church of Gnosticism that people thought to have a special knowledge of God came through uh, avoiding all of the things of this world and kind of entering into this spiritual relationship. And they often expressed it in a sexual way. I don't know why there weren't any red flags going off or even yellow flags, but this is, it, it took over the early church. They abused God's grace. They did, as Paul said, sinned more so that grace would abound more. And Paul said in Romans 6, 1, may it never be. The forgiveness of Jesus does not give us license to do whatever we want thinking he will forgive us. On the contrary, God's grace compels us to live rightly knowing that such grace came at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. They were also those who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Do you see that title that Jude gives? It's really long. He doesn't just say Jesus or Jesus Christ. Jude says they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There is only one king. His name is Jesus. He is master and Lord. There are four parts to this title of Christ used here. And in order, they speak of his universal sovereignty, his position as Lord of the believer's life, his saviorhood, and his messiahship. Jude says they were living in denial of who he is in these ways. Another characteristic of ungodly persons is they are anti-authority. They're anti-authority. They rejected the notion that anyone would have to really obey Jesus to be in a relationship with God. They thought, no big deal. God wants us to be happy. He's made me this way. He's created me with these desires. He just wants me to live them out fully. They rejected the notion that you would really have to obey Jesus. And we hear this word obey and we think that's legalistic. No, it's not. Not for a second. Any relationship that we have is governed by rules of the relationship. 
And to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't mean that his yoke is heavy, but it means that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, it means this, it's going to cost you everything. It is. It's going to cost you everything to deny yourself and to pick up his cross and follow him. These anti-authority, ungodly persons thought that the demands of discipleship were too costly. They were like the rich man when Jesus confronted him that could not sell everything to follow him. They loved their sin more than they loved the Lord. The danger is that they do not always leave the church. They sit next to us, sing the same songs, go to the same worship services, attend the same conferences. The danger is they do not always leave, but they creep in alongside they live with what, the, what we're dealing with in this world today, a certain moralistic, therapeutic deism. They're just looking for some kind of comfort because they go to church to kind of take away all the, the bad thoughts that they have about how they're living. I go to church, it's covered. God will be happy. Deviation from truth accompanies and justifies ethical and moral sin. To that, Jude says, contend. Our faith needs action. Church, if we do nothing, the gospel will be gutted of her transforming strength. Do nothing, the glory of Jesus will be dismissed. And so how do we contend? Look at verses 20 and 21 in Jude. And we'll talk about this later in fuller detail as we make our way through this letter. But you, beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so what does Jude say as he calls us to contend? Number one, pray in the Spirit. Number two, stay in the love of God. And number three, anxiously wait for the return of Jesus. That's how we contend. That's how we stay in the fight, and that's how we look forward to the goodness that is to come in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.